Before we get into the Word, I'd like to share a little bit about what we're going to be doing. Um, if you're not familiar with the idea of sabbaticals, um, a lot of times people will take them because there is some sort of acute issue that has come up or because they are uh, faltering or because they have become burnt out. Um, by God's grace, none of those things are true of uh, me or our marriage or our family. Um, this is my 15th year being a full-time pastor. I, I started young, and um, this is my 17th year in full-time ministry. And um, frankly, I want to be somebody that runs the race until the end. Uh, I just hit the age of 40, and if the Lord should tarry and if he should give me the genes to live long, I hope by the age of 80 I'm still planting churches up and down the Jersey Shore. And I want to be a healthy man with a healthy heart that responds in healthy ways to my Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, another reason is, I've got music blaring on my laptop there. Um, for the last 10 years of church planting, sometimes I can give the church the best, and I feel like my family can get the leftovers. And uh, I want to uh, recalibrate thinking. I want to make Jesus be the one who gets my best, that spills out into my family, and then by extension into the church. So I look forward to uh, going on this time. It has been something that I don't feel entitled to. It's something that I am honored that has been offered. Uh, most of my contemporaries that started planting at the same time that I planted have been on a sabbatical over the last couple of years, and that's what really got me thinking about it. I started to see the fruit that was coming out of their walk and um, the fruit of their response to Jesus, the fruit and how much their preaching was able to grow as they increased their depth and their intimacy with Christ. Um, and I want that, frankly. So um, I'm humbled. It feels weird to be up here talking about it, um, but I'm humbled by the opportunity. The timing is very intentional. It is coinciding with when we're bringing John Scalambro on staff here. Um, so you guys won't be missing a beat because if I could be half the preacher that that guy is, then uh, this sabbatical will really turn out well. Um, so thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm humbled by the opportunity, and now I don't want to talk about me anymore. I'd like to talk about Jesus, and we're going to look at our text. So please open the Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to be able to look into your word. I pray that it would be preached with honesty, with integrity, with depth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, it will be projected up behind me. There's also Bibles in many of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. Uh, one thing that I didn't mention, this sabbatical is not effective immediately. It's going to be starting the last week in June, so uh, you can't get rid of me yet. I'll still be here with you for a while. So as we wrap up the Noah narrative, this final message is going to be a one-point sermon. I will be playing a one-string guitar here this morning. Uh, there are plenty of rabbit trails that we could get into as we look into Genesis 9, and there's a time or place for that. Things like, was the death penalty instituted in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 9? What was Ham's sin at the end of the chapter that led to the Canaanites being cursed? Why was the curse upon Canaan when Ham was the one 
who sin. And these things all have their place and they're interesting to discuss, but there is one main point in our text, and that is God's mission to see his image and his image bearers scattered throughout the earth. There's a lot of little topics that could vie for our attention, and frankly, they're all easier to give our attention to than the main point of obeying the call to live as God's missionary people. I mean, we could discuss all sort of things, like how the world got all these species of animals when there was only a, sp- a specific set of kinds of animals that were brought on the ark, whether the flood was a localized flood to that region or whether it was a global flood, if the flood got rid of all the dinosaurs and if that's what happened to them, if people were vegetarians before the flood, if people, um, if the geological evidences of the flood can be found in the fossil record, the fossil record and the inaccuracies or accuracies of carbon dating, or how did Noah know which animals were clean or unclean before he was ever given the book of Leviticus that had the law? We could discuss all of those things, right? And they're kind of fascinating stuff. You could put plenty of time into those topics. I have read books on, have listened to, and have even done teaching on most of those topics before. So I can say from unfortunate experience that you could teach all sorts of things about the flood while never getting to God's heart in the text, which is the repeated calling to live as God's missionary people. So as we go through the text together this morning, we'll see that God repeats the commandment to be on mission early. We will see that God repeats the commandment to be on mission often, and we will see God's calling of his people to live on mission was never supposed to be optional. Our main point that we want to drive home today, I'm going to give it to you right at the onset, is be fruitful and multiply has a lot more on the line when we're forced to take it seriously. But should a command that was repeated and stated so many times and in so many ways have ever been taken lightly to begin with. So as we get into the chapter, as soon as Noah and his family get off the boat, we see their first commandment in verse 1. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God commanded them as they get off of the boat to be fruitful and to multiply and to go and fill the earth. Let's just take all the religious verbiage out of this and see what God is saying. What God is saying is, Look, Noah, the world now exists and is only filled with you eight people. There needs to be more than eight of you in order for the species of mankind to survive. So multiply. And as you multiply, go and enjoy God's blessing. And as you multiply, do not stay in one place like we will see in another story that we're going to be looking at next week. No, don't just stay in one place. Go and fill the earth. And as you do, take God's image as God's image bearers and take God's glory as God's glorifiers along with you. And this is not the first time we've seen this commandment as we've looked through Genesis. It was told to Adam all the way back in Genesis 1. It was something that was commanded before sin ever entered the world. And this is really important to note. Because some commandments were made as a direct result of sin. Things like how to deal with a thief or how to deal with a murderer like you would read in Leviticus. Or commandments about 
using just measurements instead of defrauding your neighbor and using unjust systems or commandments of paying your debt. These are all a result of managing the sin that came into the earth as a result of the fall. But there are a few mandates that we see that predate sin coming into the world, meaning that even in a perfect world, these things would be a part of it. Even in Eden, heaven, whatever we want to call it for today's purposes, these things would be a part of it. Some examples could be the institution of marriage. That was a union that existed before sin entered the world. Or things like instructions about work, demonstrating that work was not a result of the fall, but work coming through the sweat of your brow, through hardened ground and thorns and thistles is a result of the fall. And like those things, the calling to be fruitful and multiply was given before the fall, meaning that God has always seen this as a matter of primary importance. The calling here to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is something that has always been close to the heart of God. So consider this, for Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply, it wasn't just a matter of primary importance. This was a matter of necessity at this point in the world's history. There were only eight people that were left. So they knew that this meant either obey the commandment that was given to you or the species that was created to be God's image bearers would die along with them. And they didn't just spiritualize this death. They didn't just spiritualize being fruitful and multiplied. They saw it happen. They knew that it was either multiplication or death. Those were the only two options. And let me just make this point. I think that it's because the church does not see this as an imminently important issue that they do not take this commandment seriously. This is one of the main reasons I believe in church planting as God's main means, biblical means, to reach the lost. Do any of you out there keep up with the church plant, either via emails or their Facebook page or showing up over there? Well, see, I, I see some hands. Then you would know that when there's only 40 of you venturing out on a new work, that being fruitful and multiplying is the difference between having a church or not having a church. It's really that simple. If Daniel and the people who are planting the church stop doing that kind of work in their community and stop doing the work of evangelism and stop doing the work of discipleship, they would cease to be a church by the end of this year. But the problem is that once a church gets to be more established, they can lose that same fervor for urgency. Or we get super duper good at managing all of the in here stuff that we forget that God's calling the risen Christ gave a calling that we should be concerned, we should be meeting here so we could be discipled and mobilized to go and reach out there. From what I have read, there is a life cycle that tells the sad tale of almost every church ever. They start off with a vision 
to be fruitful and multiply when they're young in their infancy and excitement is just blowing throughout the building. And then they get to the place where they need to structure the church in order to prepare for future multiplication. Notice that something subtle happens here. During this stage, instead of focusing on being fruitful and multiplying the church, the church subtly shifts to the idea of future multiplication. And from what I've seen, this is usually when evangelism versus, well, we just want to go deeper as a community into discipleship, and then start getting pitted against each other as if they were ever competing ideologies to begin with. After this structure, uh, after the structure for the future stage comes the plateauing stage. The church no longer has that fresh wind. They no longer have that fresh fire blowing through them, and it begins to plateau. And depending on the quality of the programs that there exists inside the church for people in the church, a church can stay at plateaued for a really long time. After the plateauing stage comes the wake up and strengthen what remains because we're dying and we haven't had a person under 80 here in the last 40 years. So we should do something about this. Let's try to stop the hemorrhaging. And after that comes the spiritualize the fact that we're dying by calling it pruning until there's nothing left to prune stage. Um, these stages I actually read about in a book that was ironically talking about Charles Spurgeon when he said, tear this building down, the place that he used to preach at, the church that he used to lead, before it should ever become a museum. And it was ironically a man who was taking people on a museum tour through that old church that shared this stuff in a book. So these things happen even to that great church. I've heard the word pruning used to describe the church's slow death due to lack of evangelism so many times that I actually have a hard time taking people seriously when I hear them using that word. Why is it so difficult to just admit, hey, somewhere along the line, we lost our way and we stopped focusing on having a heart to reach the lost? Why is it so tough for people to see that if you stop reaching new people with the gospel, then the best that we can hope for is to hang on to the people that we already have? It's one of the biggest reasons that 70% of churches in America, by um, Tom Rainier's latest statistics that came out this year, are either plateaued or in a state of declining. If people would just humble themselves and seek the Lord and confess, Lord, we've lost our way. Would you please lead us again? They could actually see new life being poured into that body again rather than trying to spiritualize their life support by calling it pruning. Look, I'm going to give you an analogy that just kind of busts that analogy and just shows you that you just can't use it. If you hired, if you owned a farm and you hired farmhands and all they did was go and pluck up all of your plants, pulling them up from the root, plucking all of the fruit off the branches, and then they try to tell you that it's okay that your vineyard is destroyed because they were just pruning it. Um, 
you'd fire that farmer, right? You'd say, your farming absolutely stinks. Well, if that's just common sense, then why do we accept that this is logical within the church? Pruning exists. Pruning is a real thing. We read about it in the scriptures. But pruning exists to cut away the things that are unhealthy in order to promote new healthy growth. But like I said, in the early desperate stages of a church, they're hungry and know that we need to continually be fruitful and multiply in order to just continue to exist. Brothers and sisters, the same is true of more established churches. It's like, it's like Red said in Shawshank Redemption. You either get busy living or you get busy dying. What kind of church do you want to be? There are so many churches in this area that get busy dying. I don't know how people accept it when it's just like, oh, it's dying. It's dying a little bit more, but hey, the lights are still on. Oh, it's dying a little bit more, but they haven't put chains across the entrance of the building yet. Oh, it's dying. When we could just look at verses like 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray that I would hear them from heaven and I would heal their land. Why do we want to be in the business of dying? When did the church get to the point when they accepted the idea of getting busy dying? And why did they ever feel like they could move beyond the commandment to be fruitful and multiply to begin with? Being a church planter who has served on the last several years on the board of a church planting organization, this is a question that makes me lose sleep at night. I'm being serious with you. At what point does a church say, we don't need to continue to focus on multiplying on out there? So from now on, let's just take all of our flashlights and shine them inward. And you wonder why Christians get so annoyed with each other. It's because you're just shining your flashlights in each other's faces. It's like, mm, mm, look at my flashlight, look at my flashlight. The light is supposed to shine out there so that that light might shine up there and give glory to Jesus. What made churches that are dying decide to take this commandment so lightly and how did they come to that decision because even though the commandment to be fruitful to multiply was given all throughout scripture before the fall verses one and seven show that the same calling existed after the fall look with me again at the first seven verses and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth the fear of you and the dread of you shall come upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens upon everything that creeps in the ground and all the fish and of the sea into your hand they are delivered every moving thing that lives shall be given to you as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. We'll come back to that later. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast that will require it, and from man. From this fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by, the man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and to you... Be fruitful. Again, he repeats this. And multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So this commandment to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth was given at various times after 
the garden as well. It's given here twice to Noah. It was given twice to Abraham. It was repeated to his son Isaac. Why would God repeat something so many times unless he intended for it to be obeyed? Next week, we're going to be looking at how God brings judgment to Babel for not obeying this commandment to go out and fill the earth and multiply. But instead, they said, hey, let's just stay here. Let's just play church in this one spot. We don't need to go out and be missionaries. I know that that's what God said, but we could do it so much better if we just focus all of our attention inward. Any parents here have... Have you ever repeated something so many times to your kids that you just end up exasperated and saying something like, hey, I'm not saying this because I like the sound of my own voice, okay? I'm saying this because I actually expect you to listen. Who here has either had a parent say that to you or has said that to one of your children? All right, okay. Or the famous line, what is it that you hear when I'm talking to you? Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And I don't even know what a gander is, but I know that it's good for you. Um, God is not repeating this because he likes the sound of his own voice. So what is it that we hear when he's talking to us through passages like this? And just in case you think, well, Eric, this was given to people back then, and that was the Old Testament when they were under the law. This same commandment was given by the risen Christ in what we know as the Great Commission. If you look with me at Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw that they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came in and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Remember what a commission was. This was a king that was telling his followers to go out and tell other people the good news about the king. And the more people hear about this risen king, the more people become followers of our king Jesus. And at this point, we have addition taking place. That original group of disciples were each being obedient to the call to go and make disciples. But then something awesome started to happen. Those disciples of disciples started to go out and make disciples. And at this point, multiplication is taking place. As these disciples go out with the gospel, they are engaging in filling the earth with disciples of King Jesus. That's why we believe in church planting. If we sent out 30 people and those 30 can become 80, and then that, those people send out a church and they send out their 20 or 30 people and you start to see more people baptized and coming to know Jesus. Our vision here, and we believe this, we're crazy enough to believe this, is that we are called to plant the church in every single zip code on the Jersey Shore and we will continue to preach the name of King Jesus until he is more well-known on the Jersey Shore than Snooky is. Okay? I mean, that, that should just be a given, right? He said, ask of me, and I'll give of the nations as your inheritance. John Knox once looked over Scotland and said, God, give me Scotland or I die. 
And you know what God did? He gave them Scotland. Where are the people that are looking out over Manasquan and Seeger and Brielle and Tom's River and Bayville saying, God, give me Bayville or I die. I want to see the Jersey Shore become yours. That's why we do what we do. This is our calling as God's people, just like it was with Noah, just like it was with Abraham, just like it was with the original disciples, just like it was with the apostle Paul. God has not changed our mission. Our calling is the same as it was in the very first page of the book back in Genesis 1. It's the same calling that's here in Genesis 9. And another thing that is the same that's worth pointing out is... In Genesis 1, we read that Adam walked with God, and he was called to be fruitful and multiply. Noah walked with God, and he was called to be fruitful and multiply. The disciples walked with the God-man, Jesus Christ, and were told to go out and be fruitful and multiply, making disciples. Our calling has not changed. We are called, you, Christian, are called to walk with God and then bear fruit by making disciples who make disciples. Notice the word and in that sentence. We are called to walk with God and to make disciples. This was never given as an either or proposition. I stress this because I've heard people make goofy statements like, well, we aren't into growing in number but we're growing in depth over here. Give me a break. I mean, let's dissect that statement for a second. First of all, where in the Bible do you ever see the two pitted against each other? Why does it have to be one or the other? Why does it have to be growth or depth? Secondly, and most common, how can we say we're growing in depth if we're ignoring one of the commandments that God repeated the most throughout his scriptures. Doesn't growing in depth mean that you are learning and applying God's word to your life and repenting of areas where we're not allowing God's word to govern our lives? So when we take the commandment that's repeated throughout the Old Testament to go forth, be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth, and then we take the New Testament equivalent where we're called to go and make disciples who make disciples, If we just say no to that commandment, whether actively or passively, can we really say that we're growing in depth? Churches that have not seen a new conversion in 30 years, but everybody can quote every single verse in the book of Romans. Can they really say that they're growing in depth? Because aren't there passages in there like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Aren't there verses in there like, how shall they know unless we tell them? How can they go unless we send them? How shall they hear without a preacher? How, it is written, how beautiful are the feet on the mountain of those that go and tell good news. Let me dispel another couple of goofy ways that people spiritualize this in order to avoid having to obey it. Every time I assess a new church planter, I ask them what they are going to do to make disciples. And often I get answers about all sorts of programs that they're going to be running in their church. Look, programs that are geared towards people who are already Christians most of the time. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. We need those. Growing in Christian maturity is a necessity in the church. But the command to make disciples means to make followers of Jesus out of those who are previously non-followers of Jesus. Not just to make better followers of Jesus after those who already are disciples of Jesus. Do you get that? If we're able to grow deeper in discipleship and maturity but our maturity does not include being fruitful and multiplying into other people who are not Christians, then there are some serious gaps in what we consider maturity to be. The other goofy thing that I'd like to dispel before moving on is this goofy notion of, you know, I don't go out and make disciples because, like, you're bold. Look at you. You're up there on the stage, and, and you say ridiculous things. I'm not like that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just not wired that way. Look, Noah wasn't wired to be a shipbuilder. Noah wasn't wired to be an animal collector. Noah wasn't wired to be a shipboat captain when there were no previous things at that time. He was simply a man who obeyed what God asked of him. That is how he was wired. And as I prepare to wrap up, I want to share with you five things that we see that are true about God's mission from this text and then a couple of points of application. Number one, it is and always has been about the blood. Look with me again at verses four through six. But you shall not eat of the flesh with its life, that is its blood. For you and your lifeblood I will reckon from every beast. And then going on to man in verse six, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Look at the importance that God places on the blood. He mentions the lifeblood of an animal. Then he mentions the penalty of spilling the blood of God's image bearers. The short of it is God has always placed a ton of importance on the blood. As we talk about mission, we cannot be missionaries without sharing the fact that we were bought by the blood. We were cleansed by the blood. We were made new by the blood. We are sent out because of the blood. And by the blood, we see non-disciples become disciples of Jesus Christ. It's always been about the blood. It will always be about the blood. Number two, God sends his covenant people to be his image bearers and his glory bearers. In verses 8 through 16, God enters into a covenant with mankind. He says, I'm going to put my bow in the sky, and this is my covenant between me and you that I will never destroy the earth again in this way. As God reveals more of himself throughout the word, we see that he continually enters into covenant relationship with his people. The message of the gospel has to be carried out by his covenant people. This is what makes us unique. This is what makes our message unique. And this is why the social gospel is not a gospel and it's not unique. Anybody can go out there and just go do good things in the name of doing good things. But when we do our good deeds before man so that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven, that's evangelism. That's when we are starting to go out and see multiplication in this world. Number three is God has always maintained a faithful remnant that is Messiah 
the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent would come through. This is the overarching message of the three chapters of the Noah narrative. He's saying, look, I'm going to preserve some people here because I made a promise back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and I'm going to keep that promise, and it's going to be through one of the eight people on the boat that that promise is going to go through. Number four, God always brings the story back to the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. Look with me at verses 18 through the end of the chapter. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. And these three were the sons of Noah. And from the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in the tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told the two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders, and walked backward to cover the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Jephthah and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So he kept the line going, just like he did after Cain killed Abel, just as he did through the faithful generations we saw in Genesis 5, like through Enoch, just like we saw through him bringing Noah onto the ark and his family, and now the line narrows once again. Through Shem, we know that the Messiah would come. Number five, healthy things grow, period. Healthy people grow. Healthy churches grow by making disciples. The way to be spiritually honest about this is our goal is not growth. Notice, I've mentioned growth, I've mentioned multiplication several times this morning, but when the focus becomes growth, corners are cut, the gospel is compromised, and methods become cheesy. When the goal is health, God causes the increase. Healthy things grow. And I know the slide said five things that I wanted to point out, but I wanted to point out a six that came to me when I was just reviewing my notes last night. Number six is God uses really, really messy people to do his work of multiplication on the earth. Look, I know that John MacArthur would like to tell you that the wine in Bible times was not really wine, that it was grape juice. Well, if this is really grape juice, then Noah had to drink as much as like Buster from Arrested Development to be passed out in a cave with no clothes on. I mean, that's just, that's nuts. This ain't grape juice, folks. Noah went and tied one on. I don't know all the details, but it does result in him being naked in a cave and his sons finding him there. Not exactly what we think of a missionary who says, oh, I could never go and tell people about Jesus. I just don't know enough yet. I'm just not holy enough yet. Just stop with the sanctimonious garbage and realize that if God could use this messy dude and his messy family to be the bearers of God's good news, 
He can use messy people like you and me. How many of you are grateful that God can use absolute train wrecks of a human to be able to accomplish his work? I'm telling you this, you would not have a pastor at this church if God didn't use train wrecks of a human because Tim is a train wreck. I was just seeing if you're still awake there, buddy. It's true. He needs the gospel just as much as you. Pastor Lee needs the gospel just as much as you. I need it twice as much as any of you. Thank God. God uses messy people who don't have their ducks all in a row to accomplish his purposes. So a couple of application questions as we prepare to close. Would you consider your understanding of God to be a relationship where you are walking with God? Number two, are you actively involved in making disciples who make disciples? Look, that's a heart question. If you're not, you should be checking your heart and saying, why? This is all over God's word. If you're not, I'm I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm saying give yourself a three-letter, one-word homework assignment and just go and say, God, why? What would that look like? Number three, have you allowed yourself to be convinced that you can be a growing as a disciple without saying yes to the calling to be fruitful and to multiply as Jesus is called to go and make disciples? Because that, I've been in a lot of churches where people are so biblically literate, where people know their covenants People know their theology. People can pull out Larkin's notes and do full dispensational diagrams of what every single moment of the end times are going to look like. And they even keep those pictures on their walls because they're weirdos. Um, I've been there. I've, I've seen that kind of stuff. And they know the word inside and out. But if that church, if those people are not answering the call to go and make disciples, then all of that depth is at least somewhat lacking. Number four, in what ways are you multiplying yourself into others? Older saints, I want to speak to you for a moment. You know whether you consider yourself an older saint. I'm not going to set an age. Um, You know what? I will set an age. Let's say older than 41. Um, that would mean I'm, uh, I'm talking to you. Uh, our young people need to see you multiplying yourself into them. They don't just need the youth ministry. They don't just need our children's ministry. Those things are great. And thank God for you youth workers. Thank God for you children's workers. But each time we dedicate a child here, we read a reading that says... We take responsibility for seeing the gospel multiplied to the next generation. And we take seriously the calling to multiply ourselves as a church, not just as selective ministry groups into the next generation. Number five, can you see how desperation fueled mission and multiplication? I hope you could see that, right? There was once eight people, and let's say there was nobody else in any other country, and we are going to be as jingoistic as possible, and all we see is right here. There's more than eight of you here. So that means somewhere along the line, somebody took that calling seriously and poured into your life so that you could be somebody that can invest into 
the next. Number six, how could we be a church that have a hunger and a desperation to reach the lost and make disciples who are fruitful and multiplying for generation upon generation should the Lord tarry? And lastly, how could you, as a Christian, stoke the hunger and desperation to reach the lost and make disciples who are fruitful and making disciples into the next generation? Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. May we be a body that is investing, that is multiplying. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, knowing that as we do so, you will cause the increase. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.